Hey, welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club podcast, a music podcast from the right Ricky Sanchez. I am Spike Eskin. On today's show, Mulu and I have our first guest who is also going to do the Carl Landry Record Club. So we welcome Dave Hartley from his own project, Nightlands, and of course from War on Drugs. And we talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about their new album, Live Drugs. We talk about what he's done for the last year. And we talk about three albums. My choice was Alkaline Trio's Crim- Simpson. Mutlu's choice was Harry Nilsson's Nilsson Schmilson, and Dave's album was Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. Hey, if you want us to talk about an album that you love that maybe we haven't heard, leave it in the Apple Podcast Reviews. Leave us five stars. We love that. And leave it in the Apple Podcast Reviews. If you don't use Apple, I respect that. Just go to carlandryrecordclub.com. At carlandryrecordclub.com, you can find all of the albums that we've reviewed, all of the podcasts that we've talked about them, as well as playlists and interviews and all of that kind of stuff. If you want to check out what Dave Hartley has going on, just follow him on Twitter at Nightlands. And of course, you know where to find War on Drugs music and to find Nightlands. Just Google Nightlands. Here we go. So it's not our first guest. But this is the first time that we have had a guest actually participate in the Carl Landry Record Club. I'm honored that you decided to join us, but I'm more honored that you're participating in the club the right way. Thanks for having me. I feel yeah. like uh, I'm doing the the great crossover. It's like the it's like the EGOT. Yep. Like yep. The Ricky, yep. <laughs> Carl Landry. Well, I think the only mood, the only people who have been on both are me and you. Dave is the first. <laughs> Non the crossover host. between both uh, shows really is that yes. the case? Yeah, you know what? Because we've been kind of blazing a new trail uh, with, with with the first you know yeah. dozen or so episodes. So yeah, this is good. The crossover. Oh, wait, baby. here we go. Wait, this is insulting. Jeremy from he, you're not the first Sixers fan. Jeremy from Marion Hill is definitely a Sixers fan. Oh when yeah, yeah, yeah. I, when I right, said real Sixers right. fan, I was thinking of <laughs> Devin Gilfillian, who's kind of like a fake sports fan from Philadelphia, but definitely a fake sports fan. <laughs> So how's life, man? Like you moved, are you in Virginia, if I remember? Or was it the Carolinas? I forget. I know you moved down south. I'm in Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah, life is good. I mean, how can you even answer that question in this world <laughs> we're living in? I mean, you know, yeah. life is hell. Life is great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think in the context of hell, how is your life? <laughs> life is great. I mean, yeah. I feel blessed. We're really happy. We love it here. And especially now that like everyone in Philly is like stuck in their homes, I don't feel like I'm being deprived of the Philadelphia experience. Like when yeah. I moved down here, I was like, the one thing I'm really, really going to miss other than my friends is uh, going to like Johnny Brenda's and Sixers games. And like, I wouldn't be doing either of those things. So no, <laughs> <laughs> not unless you were on the Sixers. And yeah. I don't know. I don't know that life had that uh, no. in store for you. No. Since we haven't done a guest for the record club, I figured we would like space this all out in between doing the records, asking you about this stuff. But you as a musician and war on drugs and then your own stuff as well, being separated from that, has this been, was this a planned, would have been a planned break for you anyway? Or or what, what would this year have looked like without this? The war on drugs would have been on tour this year. Okay. Um, so no, this was not planned. But I think it's been sort of a blessing in a lot of ways, just because 
we were supposed to turn in our record in like in April, the beginning of April, and it just was not at all ready. So we've been working on it remotely since then. And typically we'd all sort of go to Los Angeles and record in these little spurts, which is great, but it's also like I have a, a daughter and a, a, a baby boy on the way. And like, it sort of strains family life a little bit and just being able to record remotely. I mean, this is my studio. I, I'm like out here every day, just doing my shit and I make a coffee and just go to work and then I can go back inside. It's, it's great. So I think like remote work has become the norm for me as well as like the rest of the world. It's been interesting for me talking to people as everybody's experiences for this has been different. Our work at WIP has Everybody who isn't part of the core operation has gone home, mm -hmm. but everyone else has been there. So I have found it, I've found a new appreciation for in-person, right? Because, mm -hmm. um, but I've, I've talked to so many people who have been so comfortable with at home. Obviously this is convenient and you can do it. The idea of not being in the same room with your bandmates yeah. though, and like, how, how are you getting through that and how has that been? It's tough. I mean, I really miss concerts terribly and I miss recording and making music with people. I mean, I've always, my whole life, I like wanted to make music by myself on my own terms and like have my own like hive. And now that I finally have it, it's like, I desperately <laughs> want to make music with other people. So, um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Music is communication. It's not something, it's not science that you cook up in a lab, even though I'd like it to be that, but you know, music is something that's shared between people. So I miss it a lot, you know, and like I've done a lot of remote stuff for various artists playing bass and stuff. And like, I love it. It's a cool challenge. It's fun to be able to just like sit and hone a part or something. But it's amazing what you the, like how much feedback you get from someone just being face to face with them, like little bot. Like if you're playing something, sometimes you can just tell like maybe by the like shape of their shoulders or something, like whether you're on the right track or the wrong track. But now that I'm remote, it has to be like via email where they're like, eh, I'm not really feeling what you're doing here. Can you go in this other direction? All that would be totally subconscious body language stuff that would take like 30 seconds. Instead, it takes like 10 emails. So, yeah, it's different. Everything's totally different. Well, I know for you guys, it's touring. It's such a huge part of what you do. How do you guys have you guys kind of set up a, a sort of system for how you stay dialed in? Because especially when you're a working band, it's on the road so much suddenly not have that and you don't know when it's coming back. How, how do you guys all stay dialed in? Not just musically, but just sort of as the, as a unit. It's hard. I mean, I don't, I don't really know, actually. Um, you stay in touch, you, <laughs> you, you, you make jokes and do zoom calls and shit and you play, but let's be honest, like we're going to be rusty when we get back together. Everybody will be, you know, like the, ne the next time you see your friend, you're going to like go to like hug them and you're not going to be sure if you're supposed <laughs> to hug them or not. And it's going to be like all of our lives, like in a macrocosm. I said to my wife about, a, I think it was this past weekend, I said, because I do see my coworkers, but I said, I kind of miss <laughs> touching them physically. Yeah. And and she she laughed at me and I was like, she was like, what do you mean? You guys touch each other? And I'm like, it's, you know, WIP is sort of on like a clubhouse in some ways, you know? Cool you would hug a guy or push him in the bag or all that. And I look at everyone that I've worked with and I haven't, I haven't touched any of them. And it, it is very strange it's to really think weird. about, are you just gonna, okay, you'll, we'll wake up one day and we'll, we'll all have vaccines, right? But it's still weird to think that I could go over 
and touch one of them. Yeah, I mean, there's no going back there. I mean, that's what like that's become sort of a cliche that we're never going to go back to how it was. I mean, we're just going to sort of emerge into a new world. Um, having said that, you know, I've potted up. I'm sure you guys have potted with people occasionally. I've done recording stuff where, with people in town where we like quarantine and then get tested. Yeah. And like I did that with my buddy Adam here. And like when he first came in, we like hugged. And I was like, this is so nice <laughs> just yeah. to like just to hug a man. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's just. Yeah, for sure. Just the little things you don't think about. Should we get into one of the records and then we'll maybe circle back? Oh, well, actually, before we do. It's not a Sixers podcast, but knowing you, Mm -hmm. I think you just have to be so fucking excited about the Sixers right now. (laughs) Like you're, you remind me of Mike in that I feel you're at like championship level, Dave. Right? I mean, you're (laughs) thinking, you're thinking parade. No, I'm I'm a whole new. I have a whole new philosophy. I don't care about championships anymore. I don't care about winning. I just want good vibes, and the vibes are so good right now that I love it. I'm like okay. embracing like a postmodern view on the league where I'm like, I don't care about wins or losses. I just want to see Ben and, and Joe like hug and, <laughs> and like, hi, I want Toby yeah. to be earning his money and feeling good about himself, you know, all that. So yeah. It's a very Zen perspective to have. Yeah. I like yeah, it. I'm I like, like it. treading That's... into Kyrie territory a little bit. Yes. But <laughs> yeah. A little bit. I want yeah, to draw a, a line there though. And then we didn't see Dave for two weeks and he said he just had to work some stuff out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, do you want to get into one of the albums? Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. What, Moot, you pick. Which one first? Oh, I don't know. You guys pick uh, whichever. Uh, all right. Uh, I'm, you know what? I, just to, to break the seal, I will go first. All right. I will do the alkaline. So, so we have three. This is the first time you've ever listened. Well, actually, I, I, I will have explained this in the intro, so I don't need to put this here. So my album was Alkaline Trio's uh, Crimson. This band, like a bunch of other bands in my life, I come into midstream, you know, like halfway through their career and end up favoring a different portion of their career than many of their true fans do. And that happened with this album for me. Like brand new as a band that we've talked about on this, even Metallica, I came in during Justice and the Black Album, so I have a better appreciation for that than I do for Ride the Lightning or Master of Puppets. So Alkaline Trio, I met and I discovered when the first single for the uh, the album Crimson came out that was called uh, Time to Waste. And I was hosting a new music show on YSP and I interviewed them. I think they were opening up for My Chemical Romance and they're very bitter about it that mm. they were opening up for My Chemical Romance as My Chemical Romance had stolen their sort of like vampire, dark punk, whole bit. So quick context, they've been around since the mid 90s. They were punk, I would say, in the beginning, and their sound cleaned up toward this album. And you could hear, the album before this album is called Good Morning, and you could hear it getting tighter, and I would say cleaner, and a little bit better produced. And this album, and there's there's always been, even when you go back, like blood imagery, like, and it's funny when you say it out loud and I'll mention a couple of the lyrics and you mention them out loud, it sounds corny, 
but they make it work. There's a lot of like vampire stuff and murder stuff and blood and all this, but when they do it, it works for me. Uh, what I like about this album is that it is well-produced and like I like big sounding, well-produced records and for not a lot of extra stuff in it, uh, it is big and well-produced. It is, um, the songs are awesome. I like the darkness that goes through it. And like I said, when I say what it is, it sounds corny, but in the context of the album, I think it's awesome. There is a a song called Sadie, which is about Susan Atkins, who is in the Manson family. And there's actually a, a clip from her in there. There's a song called Your Neck, which is essentially sounds like it's about murder. Waste is the opening one, which is about drug abuse. And um, there's even the song Burn. Like, I'll read these lyrics. The, the impending doom is left deep inside. It's haunting you each and every night. Like starving wolves counting sheep, we close our eyes pretending to sleep. Sounds like a 16-year-old's blog, but uh, but I think it's it's awesome. And I one of my and this is the last thing. One of my rites of passage when I moved to Chicago, they're from Chicago, was seeing them at the Metro, uh, the Metro, a legendary Chicago venue, and seeing them there, I truly got it. And last couple of things, they are a, a band that has two singers, which I think is awesome, mm-hmm. and uh, one of them in Blink 182 now. And I think has made Blink-182 a little bit better. I like Tom DeLonge, but I, I like the way Blink-182 sounds. With a, with Maybe it's because it sounds more like Alkaline Trio. But um, but that's my thing. I, I love Crimson. Uh, and it it was my, and I love everything that came after it. I like Good Morning, the album that came out before it. But this is the era of Alkaline Trio that really, that really got me. Moot, my guess is you didn't, weren't aware of them at all. That would be my guess. No, I and wasn't. Because, uh, well, I've been, you know, as we've been going through the, the pod, I've been getting sort of a primer on the emo pop punk yeah. uh, <laughs> side of things. You know, it's not something I really delved into that much before. I'm actually, like, getting an affinity for it. I guess because we talked about Brand New not that long ago, I just was kind of, like, drawing comparisons. I think they're both bands that sort of transcend that sound, that sort of emo pop punk sound. The only thing I'll say is, you know, I mean, this band has like really tight arrangements, excellent musicianship, really well-crafted songs. I like the thing of like the heavy lyrics against really bright, poppy kind of yep. vocals, but just Jesse Lacey singing in Brand New, I think that's that band hit me harder only because there's something a little more raw and visceral uh, about his his singing, the way he like communicates. And and the singers in this group, I guess it's Matt Skiba and... Yep. Uh, 
I forget Dan, Dan. Adriano. Yeah, they yeah. they're they're great vocalists too, but it's like a little more in that Green Day sort of style of singing. So I, I definitely liked it though. It's like I'm, I'm becoming an emo emo. Yeah, I'm becoming <laughs> an emo guy, man. Emootlu. Yeah. Uh, what Mootlu, about Mootlu? Double. Remember? Mootlu, Mootlu, right? Mootlu, Mootlu. You, Dave, were you were you aware of them or? Uh, I think I'd this... heard the name. Before, okay. But I didn't know what to expect. Um, yeah, I mean, this is like way outside my my uh, <laughs> comfort zone, like, yeah. um, which is awesome, actually. Like, I think if that's the premise of this podcast, which is it to is. like absolutely challenge absolutely. people to listen to things, like, there's there's not really a scenario other than this where I would put this music on. <laughs> um, that's good. I love that, man. I love yeah. that. That's that's a sound bite right there. <laughs> so, I mean, my first actual like gut reaction to it other than not liking it at first, um, was that it <laughs> kind of reminded me of Mars Volta in the like, or not, or sort of like that bright, like Mutlu said, like very bright and very like, there's a lot of drumming. There's a lot of drumming on this record. Yeah. Like this guy is yeah. hitting the shit out of the drums the entire time. And like the songs are really crafted. Like you can tell these guys were like, we're fucking sitting and writing some songs. Like, there's pre-choruses and then there's like yeah. the next pre-chorus is a little different. And then we're going to come in with the harmony and the second verse. There's a lot of like so, sort of song craft going on. Um, and it just sort of has like a little bit of a proggy feel to it. It's almost like prog emo. So it sort of, if it sounded like an emo band that had heard the Mars Volta record and, and was like, <laughs> this is sick. And then they, we want to be more like that. Um, I could be way off base there. But yeah, it's it's cool. It's cool to uh, listen to something completely different, and the bass playing's really good. I noticed that a couple times. Very very good musicianship. Yeah, we um, the first episode of this, Mutlu brought Donny Hathaway's live, and then I yeah. brought a, a Silverchair <laughs> album, just to and and uh, uh, it's it's neat because Moot has a completely different background in what he listen to. And I looked at that and I was like, I'm not going to like this. And by three or four songs in, I was so immersed in, it made me feel like I was at a show, you know, like I felt like I was in there, but there's so many of the albums that he's brought that I would have never in a million years listened to and found things, um, found things that I've liked. You, you guys, the thing that I'm most impressed by about the Live Drugs album is I'm amazed that it sounds like one show and it's definitely not one show. Like, I, I don't know, that must not be that hard to do, but to me, I sound, it sounds like I'm listening to one concert. Obviously you try to do that, right? Like yeah. what's the process in constructing that, in constructing a, a, a concert album that is not from one concert? How does that work? Well, you know, it was actually produced by our guitar tech no kidding. Yeah. We had this guy, Dominic East, who started as like a friend in guitar tech and just tuned the guitars and like, you know, you spend years together and we just became very, very close friends. And he just, he's like basically in the band at this point, but he knows he's got this like encyclopedia for every show we've ever played. So when it came time to mix live drugs, he was just like, oh yeah, Copenhagen was great in 2016 um, wow. for that song. He could remember like every city that we had played and could like give a list of where like, oh, Red Eyes was really cooking in like Munich in like, you know, 2015. Like he just had it all. Cause I mean, we, 
I mean, the way like our, our uh, front of house is arranged now is like everything we do is recorded. And that's pretty common, I think. Like all our shows going back like years are in hard drive somewhere. So it just, all you had to do was like think of what you wanted to put on there and, and then mix it. I don't know. I, it is, but like, you know, credit to John Lowe who mixed it. So he, cause he did a, a killer job, Philadelphia, John Lowe. I think we mentioned a perfect circle, maybe on the, or maybe not. I mean, Billy Howardell was there, was Tools Guitar Tech. And then, yeah, cause oh, we we're sorry. talking about Maynard James Keenan being an asshole. And then uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Billy Howardell was Tools Guitar Tech and he ended up, you know, perfect, or was a perfect circle his band? I think um, I have learned to appreciate live albums more than I did um, when I was younger. I was not into it when I was younger. I, I don't know what it is, but a good live album to me now, and maybe even this year, because I can't go to shows anymore, I, I, I truly appreciate. I think, it, I think it was quite an accomplishment from you guys. Um, and I've never Thank seen you. the band live. Um, how, I wonder how close you think it is of, as a representation of actually being there. Pretty close, actually. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like one thing, it doesn't, it doesn't feel overmixed to me. Like it's really tempting when you record yourself live and everything's multi-tracked. I mean, we could just fu fucking produce it like a record. You know, you could like yeah. you could like pitch all the vocals. You could it be you can just go anywhere with it. And I think when we mixed it and when John Lowe mixed it, it was just like just mix what's there, make it sound like continuous, and that's it. And so I, you know what I mean. So I think it is pretty accurate. Like, you guys you have know, to come to a show if that ever happens again. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. My yeah, list. My list is fucking long now. I know, me too. I yeah. know, it's going to be like a, a list of like 100 bands to see <laughs> post-COVID. Yeah. But yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because what I really liked about that record is it didn't, you know, there are live albums that are sort of enhanced mm -hmm. or sort of tweaked in some way uh, before they're mixed. And it really just did sound like a document of just you guys coming through the different channels. Uh, like you guys have such involved, there's so many layers and there's this like, you guys create the soundscapes. You do the same thing with Nightlands, but just speaking of war on drugs, what's the process of you guys pulling your sound together live? Do you do like a lot of rehearsing before you go on the tour? Because I know it's a byproduct of the records and you guys are already immersed in the records, but there is really, there's like a looseness, but it also feels like there's a real arc to the arrangement. So I'm just curious like your process of how you, how you prepare, especially when you're getting ready to hit the road. Yeah, you know, we don't do that much rehearsing mainly because everybody lives all over the country. The guys in the band, and I'm not speaking of myself, but we have like a few dudes in the band, our saxophone player, John, um, Anthony, who's like our guitar player, keyboard player, and Robbie, who's our keyboard player. And they're like just astounding multi-instrumentalists. Mm -hmm. And they, they just really fill in all those gaps. Like I play the bass, Charlie plays the drums, Adam sings, and then we have these other three dudes who just are like, Oh yeah, I can fill that part in. I can, I mean, I, I'm amazed just watching them do it. But, and you know, I think part of that too is like, as you know, when you tour for two years straight, you have two years to figure out how to play the songs, you know, right. like we, <laughs> we, we definitely are a little bit better towards the end than the beginning. Moot mentioned Nightlands. Can I consider your cover? I mean, at this point, a person who covered Tony T's You Don't Fuck With Me, I Don't Fuck With You, <laughs> and Tommy from Down the Shore are on the same pod. Can it, is that officially a Nightlands project or is it just Dave Hartley? 
it, has it made its way into officially being called Nightlands or no? It can, it can be whatever you want it to be. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that's Dave Hartley, man. Yeah. He did a real nice version of Tony's tune, man. <laughs> you know, I'm naming it. Whatever you want it to be is fine. Sorry, Tommy made a little appearance there. He jumps you, in once in a while just to bring a little hoagiosity yeah. to the proceedings. <laughs> uh, I think you had mentioned to me something about another Nightlands record at, mm-hmm. at some point. You've had some time, right? Have you uh, Have you worked on that? Yeah, it's almost done. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, it's, nice. it's very close. So I have a, a baby boy coming in like eight weeks, and oh, that's, boy. that's oh, my wow. deadline. So, But yeah, we're really close. So, I mean, it's been a challenge. I had... Uh, I had planned on having it done a while ago, but then when the pandemic hit, like childcare, yada yada yada. I'm sure it's like yeah. an, an age old tale at this point. It's, it's a it's a it's a whole different world when you have a two year old at your house, and 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 no daycare, <laughs> no school. You got to be a all, all different kind of entertainer, right? Seriously, <laughs> that's nonstop. Yeah, Dave, I think we should go to your album, and all I want to do is say. Before you talk about it, I had never listened to this album before in my entire life, cool. which I'm sort oh. of ashamed of. So wow. never, wow. never, nope. I, so, as soon as Spike sent me this, I was like, yes. Did yeah, it, did I knew you Did any of the songs sound familiar to you? Yeah, the, the only, so the, the album, as we mentioned, uh, Simon and Garfunkel's uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water, the only one that sounded familiar was Cecilia. Okay. And I don't know where I've heard it, but it sounded familiar. You never me. heard Bridge Over Trouble, even like the Aretha version? or no? Nah. Wow. That's crazy. Wow. Nah, that's not a, in my world. That, yeah. What was the other tune you never heard? You never that heard- That torpedoes uh, my talk. I had a whole talking point, and that just torpedoes it. <laughs> oh, does it? <laughs> kind of. Oh, no, go ahead. Go well, ahead. I'm I, curious what I was is. like thinking of this like thought experiment of like what songs are going to be remembered in 200 years. Yeah. Like 200 years, assuming that mankind is still around. Mm-hmm. Like- what songs are are going to be? Because I mean, if you think back, there's not many that I mean. I don't know some like classical and some like folk songs. That's all. That's all we got from like two or three hundred years ago. And yeah. like, I would definitely throw "Bridge Over Troubled Water" into that hat. Maybe like a Beatles song, a couple other things. But if <laughs> Spike doesn't even know it now, there you go. Well, <laughs> so to that point, I'm go- I'm going to buy you a book. Yeah, I want you to email me your address right after this, and it's called. Uh, uh, what if we're wrong by Chuck Klosterman, mm. but he goes through that. The whole book is basically about really? that exp- is about the experiment of what if things that we accept as f- normally true mm-hmm. are are not true, right? Because it it happens, right? It happens in a lot of ways. And one of the chapters he goes through what music will be remembered in that amount of time. Oh wow! And well, I don't want to blow the whole chapter, but one of the things he says is it's possible that rock music as a whole will only be remembered as the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Like the Beatles will be remembered as rock music and that'll be it and everything else will just sort of fade away. Mm-hmm. And he also talks about Moby, and to your point about me not knowing it, Moby Dick was like an incredible failure when mm-hmm. it came out. Yeah, and, and it wasn't until a long time later that it became a huge thing and, and remembered as what it was. So mm-hmm. um, I think you should read the book because I think okay. you would enjoy it. Cool. Uh, so this is one of your all-time favorites, this album, though, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I grew up with it. Like, I grew up in a household with, like, the Beach Boys, the Beatles, James Taylor, Simon and Garfunkel, that kind of stuff. Frank Lloyd Wright 
But like, then you go through. I went through a period where I was really into like Nirvana and Rage Against the Machine, and probably like sort of giving the middle finger to the music that I had grown up with, sort of subverting that. But then when I got older, I found myself going back to the stuff I'd grown up with, and it was like, oh yeah, this feels like home. Not not necessarily rejecting Nirvana or anything, but just kind of going back to the the sounds that I had grown up with. And this album for sure is like. God, it's so good. It's like such, I mean, it's kind of has that thing where it's like you could play it for a fucking baby. And it's just like, I mean, like my daughter loves it. I mean, it's Cecilia. It's like, I mean, this is about as simple and catchy and like nursery rhyme-esque simplicity. Then you have, I mean, just astoundingly deep and rich melodies and production and lyrics and, you know, and it's, it's also like, it's pretty wild. They, they like called it quits right after this, you know, this album came out, it was a fucking huge hit, massive, massive hit. They were on like Beatles level popularity. It's one of the biggest records ever at the time. And then they just broke up and like Art Garfunkel went and taught like English or something. So just like the narrative of it is pretty wild as well. But yeah, it's just, it's just crazy. There's not a bad moment. There's a live track on there, which is pretty unusual to just throw a live song on a record. She was my baby till he stepped in. The second, the second track on the record is called El Condor Pasa. That's a fucking Peruvian, that's the Peruvian national anthem. And Paul Simon just like took that song and it was public domain. He took a recording of it and just sang on it. <laughs> really? But yeah. Like he was like, I trying, had no idea. That's he tried really to get these guys to like come play on it from Peru and he was having problems with it. He's like, fuck it. And he just took the actual recording of it because it's like, it's like a national folk tune. It's not like a, no one has the rights to it. And he just like took it and sang over it, wrote new lyrics, put new lyrics on it and wrote it. It's got, you know, every song has such a cool story to it. So yeah, I love it so much. Moot, you're obviously familiar with this one. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, no quite. I love this album. Also one of my favorites. Uh, it's hard to even know where to start with this yeah. one. Like It's a big one. Uh, it's You know, when I think about this, because right after this, what was it, about a year and a half, two years later, Paul Simon's uh, debut solo album came out. And when you juxtapose these two, there's a thread maybe there, but it was also such a departure. Because the moment you didn't have him and Art Garfunkel together... There was just the sound they had singing yes. together, harmonizing, and sort of the uh, the vocal arrangements they would come up with. But then there is kind of a thread with that first Paul Simon record with some of the tunes like, uh, 
you know, with Cecilia kind of almost reminds me a little bit of me and Julio down by the schoolyard. So you could kind of hear like this was the masterwork of Simon and Garfunkel. Mm-hmm. And then you when you, you also kind of got a glimpse of where Paul Simon was going. But I'm going to bring it back to the Nightlands mm-hmm. because there's so many great moments on this record. My favorite is uh, Only Living Boy in New York. that there's that like vocal harmony soundscape that they create and it's, and you know listen to nightlands listen to this record i definitely see a direct connection to what you do because you create yeah. a lot of those kind of vocal harmony sounds because i want to ask you something just from like a writing standpoint mm-hmm. when you are writing the tunes for the nightlands records are you are you hearing those like vocal arrangements right out of the gate as you're writing or is that kind of something that once you finalize the songs you you start to kind of build it in the studio no it's definitely the vocal stuff the big the big choirs are like front and center usually from the get-go um right on yeah i mean like you nailed it like only living boy in new york that song the end of that song is literally my entire songwriting career (laughs) is trying to make multiple albums sound like the fucking 20 seconds at the end of that song i'm like yeah Literally, I'm like, I want to feel like I feel when I hear the last bit of Only Living Boy in New York all the time when I'm writing something. Obviously, you're like, that's a that's a high bar to set for yourself. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just like, <laughs> that's my whole thing. It's just these like wa- like angelic washes of, of harmonies and just feeling it's like a drug or something. I didn't really, I'm trying to think. The only music I listened to before 86 or 87 it's like I listened to Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. like I listened to, you know, whatever was popular. Sure. Um, but but any my my like birth of loving music for myself came around like Appetite for Destruction. Mm-hmm. And that was a big one for went, me as well. Yeah. And went and went thankfully WYSP is over and I've had time to be away from it and then go back to it. But my point being that things that happened before that. I would, I would have to force myself to listen to because if I didn't experience it in my life, it didn't mean anything to me. I didn't look for extra things that came out before mm. when I started listening. Yeah. So to me, Paul Simon was Call Me Al with Chevy Chase and like the video, like that, that's, that's what it was. It was just, that was who Paul, and I was a, always been aware of Simon and Garfunkel, obviously, but I just had no desire to go and check it out. Mm-hmm. So you sent along the album and I'm like, oh great, some fucking, Moot already sent a fucking old album and now he's sending an old album. But I'll tell you, I was stunned two songs in about how timeless and current it sounded to me. Have you ever heard, you know Manchester Orchestra, right? Or no, or you're aware? I'm aware, yes. Okay, so the singer from Manchester Orchestra has a side project called Right Away Great Captain, which is a solo acoustic, pretty voice sort of thing. And I was like, holy shit, all he did was listen to the Simon and Garfunkel album. Bridge Bridge Over Trouble Water is amazing. Ah! 
But Cecilius like made me feel so good. Cool. Listening to it, at like it just and it. Um, and then the other two songs I had written down as I love was so Lloyd, Song Frank Lloyd Wright yes. and Only Living Boy in New York. I don't know, for me, I just expected it. And I put this in the category of like the Carpenters, my guitar teacher loves the Carpenters and he's in a, a new metal band, but loves the Carpenters. And cool. I went back and I listened and I was like, fuck, this is wonderful too. And I put it in the same thing where I just think a lot of artists today have taken a lot from this, either knowingly or unknowingly. But it is, I don't, it sounded, I thought it would sound dated and it does not sound dated at all. In fact, it sounds like incredibly prescient, the album to me. Awesome. And I didn't expect that. Yeah, when I sent it, I was like, oh man, is Spike gonna think I'm a pussy for sending this? Cause I saw your <laughs> like, alkaline trio and I like listened to a little bit of it. I was like, fuck. He's gonna think I'm, nah. I'm a pussy, and then I was just like, "Fuck it, I love this." And yeah, yeah I mean, it's not no, like I was I, psyched when he sent it. So, cool. you know, yeah. <laughs> um, it's so good. I mean, like, yeah, I sort of feel like Paul Simon has got. I mean, he's still obviously incredibly famous, but like, if you were to think, like, who are the best songwriters ever to ever, or at least pop songwriters? I mean, most people would say the Beatles, and like probably mm-hmm. Stevie Wonder, and. Uh, I don't know, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards would come up. And like Paul Simon is right there with those guys, 100%. His catalog is fucking crazy. His like songbook is just like, the thing about the the title track is that it's, I just can't imagine writing a song like that because it sounds, and if you see interviews with Paul Simon, he's like, I wrote it really quickly. And I was like, surely I've ripped off like a hymn of some kind. (laughs) <laughs> like this for like some spiritual from church like this can't be an original composition and he like called a bunch of people and played him the song is this a, did i actually write this and they're like yeah dude like i think that's an original song i mean it sounds like it already was there it's like you discovered something that already existed and i just can't imagine writing something that's so timeless like that but yeah i also love the frank lloyd wright jam as well what was what was there who did what like what what was the relationship was it did they both write all the songs? Who Paul played what everything. instruments? No, okay. Was, yeah, Paul Simon was always the musical visionary. Yeah, Art just sang his ass off. Ah, that's crazy. Because yeah. you don't even see that very much. No, it's a weird really. relationship. Yeah, like Paul wrote everything, sang a lot, and then Artie was just like crushing singer but wrote nothing ever in his life. Wow. Yeah. They're like stepbrothers. Uh, it wasn't Will Ferrell, <laughs> the one with the angelic voice and stuff. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Fergie and Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting, like the song Bridge Over Troubled Water is kind of a snapshot of their dynamic in a way, because mm-hmm. it actually shows you that as much of a musical visionary Paul Simon is, and as incredible solo career as he had, there was something about Simon and Garfunkel that was still a whole greater than the sum. Because you think of Bridge Over Troubled Water, it has all the key components that made Simon and Garfunkel great. An amazing song written by Paul Simon. They do have their moments of harmony, but then it's really Art Gar- Garfunkel mm-hmm. singing that song. Right. And I don't know song, that he steps back and lets Art sing it. Exactly. And I don't know that as much as I love Paul Simon singing, I don't know that he would have delivered it quite the same way or with the same impact. No. And, you know, right there you kind of see, okay, there was, you know, Paul Simon has had an amazing solo career. But amazing. there was something about Simon and Garfunkel that 
was a whole greater than the sum of the parts. And it's... I agree, yeah. This record really shows it, I think. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, I love his solo stuff, too. And that's not to put it down, but, like, you know, the interesting, interesting thing is, too, like, they didn't really like each other at this point in their career. And I think that is good, sort of. I think you often see bands, like, have a little tension. I think it can help, you know? I, I, I think it's good for them. You can, you can kind of hear it in the record, and it's cool. I think when there's that tension, it makes people fight for what they want a little bit more. You know, like I, I think you when you're you want to prove mm-hmm. something. I, I mean, it, it is a it's a thin line, mm-hmm. right, between too much and not enough. But I think a little bit of it is uh, is good for sure. That's amazing that um, that that's what the relation. I'm, I'm just trying to think of a. Another, like I can think of rap duos, sort of two guys with roles mm-hmm. that are different like that, but not a lot of, not a lot of other artists. Yeah, it's, you know? it's very unusual. Wild, Wild. Garfunkel. And the, his Garfunkel's hair is just on point. <laughs> and and by the way, Dave, <laughs> let, lest you mistake me for some tough guy, I like plenty of pussy music as nice. as, <laughs> as uh, Moot can test to. And I've seen the Backstreet Boys ten times Ooh. in person. Ten times, so there's no tough guy stuff. Okay, and you almost considered dancing, right? From what I understand, but didn't. I did not dance, yeah, because I no longer dance. About, right. I've given up all dancing, but uh, <laughs> I did not. I did not <laughs> dance the last time I saw him. I appreciate you bringing this to me. This is actually this is one of the ones from this. We I've had a bunch of albums from uh, from I think this is this will be episode fifteen, but a bunch of albums that have made it into my I listen all the time now, cool. and I think this album is going to stick there for me. Killer, you know. How many albums did they release together? Like five. Okay. Not that many. It was a short career. Yeah. And they've had some reunion tours, but Mm -hmm. they've never even tried to make the decision to record together again. I guess it was just... They really don't get along, apparently, at all. Uh, Hmm. They just fight like crazy. It's kind of cool in a way. They just ended with a masterpiece, you know? It's like Jordan if he never came back, you know? Exactly. Exactly. We we had Barry Sanders on WIP today, like really? him, like he, Just yeah, like Barry. yeah. And I was talking to uh, Joe DeCamera, who's the midday host, and he was he was working out questions, and he was like, "If you were talking to Barry Sanders, you know, what would be your first question?" And I'd be like, "What have you been doing for the last twenty years? You quit when you're twenty nine or thirty, and at the best running back I've ever seen. Yep. That's all I wanted to know. Why'd you stop? What what have you been doing? So." What did he say? Just drinking. Um, he said he he said he said he just knew. Yeah. He said I knew. He said football. You have to want to play. You just you yeah. have to you have to really be. The, you know, Ike Reese actually said the same thing. You get to camp and you just know. Oh no, I don't. And football isn't a game that you can just sort of like sleepwalk through. No. You'll get you'll get murdered. It hurts right. too much. You know. So Barry Sanders, but he was super engaged. He knew what his score was on Tech Mobile, like his speed score. He like he <laughs> he knew everything. He just he said it was time. It was just time. That's awesome. Uh, Moot, you want to? Oh yeah. Get to your your record. So right around the same time frame as Bridge Over Troubled Water. Yeah, I thought Bridge you guys Over. were were in cahoots yeah. when I saw both of them. Yeah, I mean like, early seventies. Yeah, yeah, these guys are cornering me. Bridge Over Troubled Witter, right around the yeah. same time as that record. I guess maybe about a year later came Harry Nilsson's Nilsson Schmilson.
was a time when we could dance until a quarter to ten. We never thought it would end then. And Spike, you know, because in that Google calendar, you just wrote Nilsson Schmilson. So did you think that was, I, I, I yeah. somehow thought that you thought that was the name of the band. Well, because my response to you was, so Moot sent it to me, and I, I had never heard this, well, I had thought I had never heard this one. Uh, I had never heard this one either. And all I see on the album cover just says Nilsson Schmilson. And I was like, oh, this is a made up name. That was my only response. Well, you said fake name. I said, yeah. I mean, yeah. that is kind of a, probably a made up thing. Well, it reminded me of when we were talking about the Ark and I was doing all this, the Nordic names. Jorn Schmorgensborgen? Like yeah, Largen Schmorgensborgen. I thought you were like fucking with me. Yeah, so, I, yeah, that was the one time like I had like a laugh attack during the yeah. plot that I was yeah. having a really hard time getting through it. Yeah. But, uh, I, I never heard Nilsson, never heard Nilsson, had not, didn't know it was, wasn't, the artist wasn't Nilsson Schmilson. Nilsson Schmilson, Harry Nilsson, and the record Nilsson Schmilson. Yes. Uh, a great, I don't know, are, are you a fan? Are you a fan, uh, Dave, of Harry Nilsson? I figured, huge, knowing huge that fan. you like, yeah, I had a feeling, you know, that we were kind of on the same wavelength with, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, Harry Nilsson, same time, but uh, he... To me, he's like a singular artist. In the sense his, his career kind of fits almost squarely right in that time frame, the late 60s and 70s. And uh, he passed away in 1994. But from 1980 on, he really didn't make any more records. Mm -hmm. He did some like soundtrack work and stuff like that. But I think he is somewhat unheralded in a way because, amongst other things, he never toured. He was like a pure studio never. Uh, artist. Yeah, he just didn't. It wasn't. I think later he said that he had regretted it. This record, Nilsson Schmilson, is his seventh, it's fun to say, Nilsson Schmilson. Yeah. By the way, <laughs> two, two, um, two albums in a row has chosen an album with a cover with a guy in his underwear on the cover. Right. Um, two straight albums. <laughs> every album's gonna be that from now on, buddy. <laughs> well, Prince, Dirty Mind, another masterpiece. That's Prince yeah. in his underwear. Yep. And this is, a, he's in the robe. Harry's in the robe in this one. Yeah, right, for sure. Yeah, they're real smooth, man. But this is his seventh record. I mean, he he actually started out as a songwriter uh, in the late 60s. That was kind of how he made his name. Uh, but he's an interesting artist because he was prolific as a songwriter. A lot of people covered his tunes. Even before he really had success as a recording artist, he'd had his songs covered by a range of different artists, uh, everyone from like Fred Astaire and um, amongst others. Who are some of the other artists that did his tunes? The Yardbirds, The Monkees, Glenn Campbell. So he'd already kind of made a name for himself as a uh, as a songwriter, but that eventually kind of like led into his artist career. Just a few touchstones before Nilsson Schmilson. You know, his first breakthrough hit was "Everybody's Talking" in the film Midnight Cowboy, which is kind of an iconic song in that movie, and that really is what put him on the map as far as being like his own artist. He also did a really cool record, which was I think two albums before this one with Randy Newman. Where he did a great record, right? That's my favorite. <laughs> Dave and I are like right on the same wavelength here. Uh, yeah, that's that's it's between that one and this one, but you know Randy Newman doing all Randy Newman tunes and and uh, he accompanied uh, Harry on the record. Then here's here's a good one for you, Spike. He also did a lot of film and television work. He wrote and performed the theme. For the courtship of Eddie's father. So you were a Nilsson fan. Which we fan, talked about. Which yes. we talked about. You were a fan of the Schmilson and you didn't even know it. He's a warm-hearted person who loved me till the end. People let me tell you about my best friend. 
Wow. What what was the thing that reminded me of the courtship of Eddie's father? Do you even remember? We were talking about TV theme songs, sitcoms. Yeah, I guess. But there was there was one of the songs reminded me of it. I don't, Dave, I don't know if you know that theme song. Mm. It's a it was Pretty a great. TV show. It, I think the show only ran for two years. Bill Bixby and his son, and it's called The Courtship of Eddie's Father. And uh, how's it? People, let me tell you about my bet. You oh, would, you might recognize. I it. do know yeah, that. Yeah, it. I know that song. It, it's a great tune. Yeah. <laughs> wow! Wow! What a small world. See, you're yeah. a fan of the Schmilson. You didn't even know it. I had no idea. But uh, but this record, I think. I mean, he did some really cool. Uh, Aerial Ballet is a great record. The one that came after this one, Son of Schmilson, is also really good. But Sh- Nilsson Schmilson uh, is still probably my favorite record. Is I just think it encapsulates him at his absolute peak. He's interesting to me as an artist because he's sort of a bridge between the 60s Brill Building pop, uh, late 60s rock, British Invasion, and then the 70s singer-songwriter sound. And I don't think there's another artist that kind of was exact, like was an amalgamation of all those things in quite the way that he was. And then this record kind of, it give, if you just look at the three singles that came from it, it gives you a nice snapshot of it. As Without You, which is a bad, uh, bad finger cover. That's just an amazing vocal performance that he apparently did in one take. Crazy. And he, and he won a Grammy for it. I mean, you just really see the power of his voice in that record. Then there's Coconut, which is kind of my favorite part of Harry Nilsson, the kind of weird, quirky, eccentric Nilsson. You better put the lime in the coconut, drink them both up. Put the lime in the coconut and call me in the You know, it's, it's this kind of Calypso kind of song, repetitive but infectious. And then there's Jump Into the Fire, which, you know, is made iconic in Goodfellas. But it's a great rocking song. He's a great rock singer, too. And I just think, I don't know, he's he, to me, to me is somewhat unheralded. Maybe not, doesn't get the same recognition as some of his contemporaries. But um, just, just an amazing artist, a unique artist in a unique time frame. But I think a lot of his work holds up. I think he's, and I, I think this record is is probably his best, along with maybe a few of the others. Maybe you could put in Son of Schmilson and the and the one with Randy Newman. Dave, you're a Nilsson guy, obviously. I, I love it. it. Yeah, I mean, he's one of my favorite singers ever. Um, he does the thing that I love the most in music, which is sad lyrics disguised in like playful melodies, which is like the yeah. <laughs> that's like the Beach Boys thing. It's like I'm singing yeah. this happy melody, but actually I'm talking about suicide. You know. Like it's, it, I love that dichotomy where in, in, you know, Nielsen's like super playful, almost jokey with some of his stuff, but there's a real darkness there. And of course, and he was terribly depressed and kind of drank himself to death. He destroyed his vocal cords. Like he, he fucking did, like the most beautiful instrument on earth. And he blew it out like in a drunken screaming contest with John Lennon. And yeah, he's just incredible. Never did a show, never did a fucking concert, which is a wild thing. Um, yeah. because he had this crazy stage fright. Yeah. He's incredible. He's just, he's, there's a, there's a real quirkiness and eccentricity and sadness. And I mean, I actually don't normally like a like comedy in music. 
like a lot of my favorite, like Bridge Over Troubled Water is great. There's not, it's not funny, really. I mean, there's like, <laughs> there's a lightheartedness to it, but like, it's not yeah. a funny record. But actually, fucking Nielsen Schmielsen is hilarious. Like, Coconut is a total piss take, and he's clearly <laughs> fucked up. Like, he's, there's a lot of, a lot of booze on that record. Like, he was a big drinker, drug user. He was definitely partying. He liked to bring the party into the studio. He, w- he would always hang out with like Keith Moon, John Lennon. Whoever could whoever could drink all night, that was who he was hanging with. So, yeah, I, I love Harry. I, I mentioned the same thing, you know, when we were talking about the arc. I said, I don't like bands that are kidding. Like, I, I if if you're funny, I want you to. I don't want to feel like it's a put on. And um, uh, I agree with you there. I I thought this was cool until Coconut. <laughs> like, so it's a tough one. I, well, could go either way. I also think I, I didn't have any context. I didn't know the first half of the record. Like I didn't know any of those songs until we got to "Without You," which I know. Right. Like I, I knew, but then it went "Without You" and then "Coconut," then "Let the Good Times Roll," then "Jump into the Fire." I knew all those songs, and I I don't know if it brought back being in my mom's minivan in like 83 or something. Like, I don't know what the memory it was that it brought back. Which tune brought that back for you? It was, well, it might've been without you, but then Ah. all of them after that. But without you in my head hit me like, um, I want to know what love is by Foreigner, which I I love that song, but it reminded me of that song. But that, that same time for me. But the first part of the album, like Moonbeam, is awesome. Have you ever watched a moonbeam? As it slid across your window? A struggle with the It is a like, wispy sort of like Early in the morning, I actually heard soul, like soul vibes in that. It sounds like he, you know, really dug in. And then down is when you really hear the rock version of sort of how he can sing. And I loved all that. But then when it hit the songs that I, I don't know what it was, when it hit the songs that, and Coconut, I had no context. So you're like, <laughs> you know who he is, right? You know it's this eccentric guy that was, that blew out his voice fighting with Lennon and was drunk and all this. Me, I'm just like, what is this goofy shit? And that's how I, that's how I took it. So it it like, it took a, a turn for me on that. That's kind of tough. Yeah, yeah, I can go either way on that one. Like sometimes I think it's like it's so ballsy to put a song like that on on the record because it's just it's very it's like comedic. And I think I'm usually I skip it actually because I think I've heard it so many times and it's like I'm yeah. not. It can wear on you. It can wear on you, but it is also like it's weird. It's like one of those ones where it's like it's brilliant, but I don't know. You know, I love it, but do I? Or you know, it's it's interesting. So I could, I could totally see your reaction being that and and understand yeah. that. Yeah, and I was associated with Re- Re- Reservoir Dogs for some reason because it, it was used in that oh, film. Oh, is it a, in that? Yeah. Maybe that's when I know it the best yeah. from. Yeah. So I don't it know. Is. I somehow, he, somehow his songs, like, because the scene in Goodfellas where Jump of the Fire is used is like a heavy scene. I think of Midnight Cowboy. Like his, his 
songs have kind of been I think I feel like there are people who know his music or know his tunes but don't necessarily know him or aren't mm-hmm. aware of him uh, necessarily. So it's it's kind of an interesting thing but also I kind I think it's kind of unfortunate that some people kind of know him from that lost weekend Lennon era in a way like what you're describing where cuz I guess he it was never quite clear to me. I guess after that situation with Lennon, like his voice kind of got better and he made more records, but I guess he was never quite the same, never right? Never quite Is the that, same, yeah. He just didn't have the same range or, you know, and that's kind of an unfortunate thing. I think I feel like people know him, some people know him, some music fans know him from that context of the crazy things with like Lennon where they like heckled the Smothers Brothers and got right. like kicked out of the <clears throat> Troubadour. and Right. You, you know, but it's kind of unfortunate because I really think if you kind of absorb his presence like even with the Beatles the impact he had on them when when they first they, they announced Apple Records and you know they asked McCartney or they asked Lennon like you know who's your favorite American artist he's like, he's like Nelson and they asked McCartney he's like Nelson you know it's like they, <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like he influenced them uh, they, I, I feel like for especially John Lennon and Ringo I feel like he was like their favorite singer they totally. were like inseparable for a while yeah stage fright is a crazy thing like I've always had incredible anxiety getting up in front of people, so much so that I remember when I was in like middle school and grade school and high school, I would fake sick for like a week to avoid doing an oral report in front of the class. And in college, I eventually had to do it. But even today, have either of you guys ever, like, what is your level of anxiety getting up in front of people? And have has it ever been in a level where you would call it like, stage fright or said, I don't know if I can do this. Dave? Oh, yeah. Big yeah. time. I've been on medication for that, actually. Um, really? Yeah. I mean, never never with the war on drugs, actually, because the war on drugs is such like a unit. And like all I have to do is play bass, which is so natural for me. It's something I've been doing my whole life. But like for Nightlands and like other stuff, yeah, it's it's uh, there's something really vulnerable vulnerable about singing or speaking in front of people. And actually, I can say the most nervous, this is so weird, the most nervous I've ever been was giving a best man speech for my best friend. Uh, and I still don't understand that. I mean, it went great, <laughs> but uh, but it was so strange because it was like in the middle of a tour, I flew from like a huge show that would have made that you would think would have made me nervous, but it didn't to like an intimate wedding. And I just remember getting up to give the speech. And I was like, Jesus, I'm so nervous. Why am I so nervous? I don't understand it. But, What's so quiet? Yeah, and that's like you. And everybody's looking at you. They're just looking at you, waiting to see what you're gonna, how you're gonna fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> Moot, have you ever been? Are you a, a scared on the stage guy? I've definitely yeah. had nerves because I play so much solo. In a way, I'm comfortable with that. But on occasion, if I've been on like a on some really big stages, like at a at a bigger shed or maybe like an arena show, and I've played solo, I'm trying to think. I think the most recent time I can think of being like, I was really nervous, was uh, was I opened for Hall & Oates at this arena in Little Rock in Arkansas. I've opened a lot of shows for them at, you know, big performing arts centers and amphitheaters and outdoors. I always felt comfortable in a theater vibe. I always felt comfortable. But there's something about the arena mm. and maybe just a slap back because I think everyone there is on, on in-ears, but I'm just there with my guitar. Something about the Jumbotron's. It just felt like a little bit disorienting to me, and you know, I got through the set. I think it, it it went it went pretty well, but I definitely had a level of like anxiety and nerves on the stage that 
I, I don't remember having for a long time. And I think it was just something about the slapback, the cav- like extremely cavernous nature of an arena. I don't know. That, that, that's the one time I can remember recently where I was like, I was definitely like, go, uh, there was a heavy, heavy, heavy nerves. And then when you're up there with, by yourself with a guitar, it's kind of like you have to just kind of close your eyes and get into your own world. Nowhere to hide. Yeah, there's nowhere to hide. See, when you're up there with a band, you guys can kind of play off each other, totally. right? And there's a confidence that comes with like yeah. your friends that you've, you know, you kind of like have you this shared confidence. But yeah, the going up there alone is a whole different thing. Yeah, and I I love it. I enjoy it. But but if you do hit that point where you're where you're kind of nervous, and I, I feel like it was more the first tune or two, and then you know I, I kind of settled in. But I that's yeah that's. When you don't have the safety net, sometimes it kind of can can get into your head a little bit, you know. Two things on that. First of all, it, I don't know if I've ever mentioned it. I did stand up comedy one time. It was on my <laughs> when I was unemployed in between WISP and WIP. It was like on my bucket list thing. And I've sung in front of people. I've done like I've done a lot of things in front of people. There's nothing as horrifying as stand up comedy. Nothing. I can't imagine. It, first of all, I didn't know, I know who I am on the microphone. And I know what my sense of humor is, but I didn't learn until Artie Lang had a radio show for a couple of years. When they got rid of one of the co-hosts, Nick DiPaolo, I got to co-host it um, twice with Artie Lang. And I told him this story about doing stand-up and failing. Everybody just sort of like staring at me. And he goes, they made me tell one of the jokes to him. And I, t- I told it to him and he goes, oh, well, that's, that's not a joke. That's why nobody laughed. And I was like, oh. <laughs> he's like, he's like the, the thing is, it seems like I'm telling stories, but I'm punching it up with jokes. All, you have to put jokes in the story. And he goes, you didn't put any jokes in it. You just told the funny story. And he's like, that's why nobody <laughs> laughed. So you start going faster when nobody's laughing. And you, I started cursing more. I ended before my time was over because I went so fast and the guy that was supposed to take the mic from me wasn't there. Oh, God. Oh, no. So I had to go to like- No safety net there, man. (laughs) Oh, my God. The worst experience. And then the other thing about the best man speech, I haven't, I've never had to give one and my brother's wedding just got canceled because of COVID. So I probably won't ever have to, which was very fearful because he got married to an Indian girl so it was going to be a, an Indian wedding in California, which meant I think there were going to be like 500 people there. Like it would have been horrifying. But I always told my wife when we got married, and this is going to sound bad, but I was like, there shouldn't be made of honor speeches. And she was like, why? And I was like, they always suck and they always go too long. No offense, no offense, no offense. And she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, every made of honor speech starts in fucking first grade. Every one of them. They start in first grade. <laughs> and of course, her maid of honor speech from her cousin went like 25 minutes. I mean, it was, it was way too long. So how did you do? Did you do well on the, the... The best man speech? Yeah. I crushed it, actually. Um, you know, something someone told me, and it's so effective. I don't think it would work with stand-up comedy, but like a therapist or someone told me, like, just say that you're nervous. Yeah. And it's, it's fucking magic. Like I got up there and I was like, wow, I'm really nervous. And instantly I felt better. It's like all of a sudden, it just, it's weird. It's like, you don't have to pretend 
to be confident if you're not feeling that way. But then all of a sudden you become confident. It's very like paradoxical. So yeah, it went well. Pro, uh, pro tip to anybody giving a best man speech, write the speech in, in advance. Don't fucking wing it. You think you can wing yeah. it and you're going to get up there and you're going to, the plane is going to crash into the fucking mountain. Write the speech in advance. <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth, man. You got to prepare. prepare. You got to be prepared. Yeah. You got to know the, at least know the beginning, middle and the yeah. end because they end up going too long when they don't know how they're going to end it. You know, they don't know what the last thing is. So. Moot, all I have left is the, the rapid fire for Dave. Do you have anything or are you ready to go? Well, I guess I, I do want to ask this because we, we've been asking, when do you, this is an impossible question to answer, by the way, before uh, we yeah. get to the rapid fire. When do you estimate that shows will be back full throttle? And you guys at the War on Drugs, you play pretty big places, so you, you, you pull a lot of people in. Have you guys discussed that? Like, what, what do you envision? Are you thinking this fall, next next year, uh, you know, maybe spring 2020? Like, um, I know it's an impossible question to answer, but just in your We have shows booked this late summer, early fall um, in Europe. I think with every day that passes, the, it's less likely that those are going to happen. And then we also have shows booked for next year. Yeah, I mean, it's it's this question. Normally, there's like someone who knows these things. Right. In a normal year, there's like some, your manager or a booking agent or some, there's like a gatekeeper who knows these magical facts. And this is a time that no one fucking knows. Like no one knows the answer. It's like the booking, you can book all you want. Book a tour. (laughs) Like you can book a tour tomorrow. It's not happening. You know, like it's so, I mean, I guess if I had to guess, I'm guessing like late this year, early next year is my guess. And do you think you'll... How do you think you'll feel when you get back? Like, because it, it's not going to be the same. We talked about this at the beginning. Yeah, I, I try to envision like, what's it going to look like? You know, to get on stage or, I think, you know, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you guys have had like any, you know, and I don't condone family gatherings really unless they're done with certain precautions in place. But I don't know if you've had any family gatherings. Like we had a Thanksgiving thing where everyone quarantined heavily and then got tested, and and we had a thing, and it was like. Once you're in a room with people, you fucking forget about everything. You're not, right. you know, once you see your parents when you haven't seen them for like 10 months, you're not like, oh, should I grab my mask? You forget about the mask. Like it's in our nature to, to like commune with one another. It's not in our nature to avoid human contact. So I think it'll all come back. I think once we're at a concert, whenever that is, it's, it's like going to feel fucking amazing. We're not yeah. going to feel weird. I think we're just going to like exult in the occasion. I mean, we're lucky that like most of our shows we booked are just outdoors. Like right. if you're able to play outdoor shows, I think it's going to be a lot easier. I think it's going to be a little bit harder like everything else now. It's like it's going to be harder on the little guy. Like if you're trying to play a packed bar, that might might take a little longer. You know. I think there is a nature of humans to say, to be cautious, cautious, cautious. Then they're in the moment. They say, fuck. Yep. And, and that's why... I think humans make great decisions and bad decisions because of that. Obviously, there are probably a lot of kids that exist <laughs> in the country because people <laughs> said, fuck it. Um, you know, like, but I, I do agree that it, once you're in it, mm-hmm. it would be hard to turn a, away from it, I think, or even enjoy it in a in a way that isn't fun. So I think that will, I think that feeling will lead people beyond their anxiety. Like getting them in the door is I think the the toughest part, you know, to me. Yeah. What the fuck do I know? I mean, based on the way people like 
seem to be willing to go to brunch in Asheville. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I'm guessing they're going to go to concert. Just like, I mean, the fucking second they opened up restaurants here, I mean, it was like lines around the block. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I guess people are just really hungry, ready to well, ready to hang. You also have to remember, too, the people that you're talking about are going to shows are like 18 to 34. Totally. First of all, they're the most likely to say fuck it. And their whole life is being social, yep. at least a lot of them. You know, they, they need it. It's part of their lives. So I think, you know, we'll see. I always try to, to me, you know how you say you look for that guy that knows. I'm always like, the sports leagues, man, they got a lot resting on it. And I always try to look to see how they plan mm-hmm. and how they, because they, you know, they've been in with testing companies and in with the government. And uh, like, I feel like, not all of baseball doesn't know a fucking thing, but I, I think the NFL and the NBA may always sort of know something a little bit more than we do. True. You know? Yeah. So uh, so we do a thing at the end of the pod where I just ask you five sort of silly questions at the end. I want your initial just sort of response. All you right. got it? Yeah. Got response. Do you think it's unfair that people say vanilla is like plain? And if you like vanilla, you have boring tastes. Mm. Do I think it's fair? I've never yeah. thought about it, but I think you make a good point. No, I, I guess it's not fair because vanilla is a flavor. It's not a lack of flavor. It is a flavor right. unto itself. Okay, so yes, unfair. <laughs> it's no more or less flavor than chocolate or strawberry, right? It's the same amount of fucking flavor. Yeah, that's a good point. Plain yogurt is like no flavor. That's yes, what but, you would say is plain. Mm-hmm. But that's not vanilla. Right, right. Big, so that's, that's the kind of dividing line there. I feel yes. like you've opened my eyes here. <laughs> yeah, it's unfair, bro. I just, when people ask me, what time are you going to be there? I'll go 6.03. And they'll go, so specific. And I go, 6.03 is no more specific than 6.05 or 6 o'clock. True. It's all just one minute. <laughs> just got to put a little bit of asshole into everything I do. Um, Jalen Hurts or Carson Wentz? Okay, this is why I'm the biggest basketball fan in the world. I have no fucking idea who the first person is. Really? That's right. Wow. So I That's incredible. Yeah, like I love basketball, but it's not that I love basketball more than say you, you guys or something. I just don't like any other sports at all. I just literally am like huh. m- completely monogamous with basketball. So, I don't know who uh who was the first guy? Jalen Hurts. He's a quarterback, I'm guessing. And also a quarterback, yes. So yeah, yeah. I get, that's incredible. Yeah. I'm, I'm jealous in a way. Yeah, I just don't. Me watch, too. I don't follow sports other than basketball whatsoever. Because you don't allow yourself to be. Because I mean, basketball is my favorite too, and NBA, specifically NBA and the Sixers. But I get distracted by everything else, you know. I mean, because the Eagles, it's like it's kind of gut wrenching to watch. Really? Them. Yeah. As I mean, a, yeah. It's, I guess I did. I did. I mean, when we won the Super Bowl, I watched that with a big group, and it was an incredible experience. Yeah. I didn't know what was going on, really, but it was <laughs> awesome. I, and I loved seeing how happy everybody was. Musicians tend to like basketball and baseball the best. There is uh-huh. a big sort of like baseball contingent amongst musicians, I think. Really? Yeah, I can see that. There's, yeah. a, like, there's a purity to the game. Here's your choice. For the rest of your life, it's a little jigsaw in the middle of this. Everything that you drink is fully hot dog water. <laughs> <laughs> it it won't make you sick. It won't make you sick. It's guaranteed to not make you sick. Or everything tastes normally, but you know there is a stranger's 
one drop of a st- stranger's saliva in that drink. So every drink will have a different stranger's saliva in it. Well, what, what are the possibilities of getting, <laughs> of getting sick, though? Are, well, are contagions potentially in the in the in this stuff? Because if it's just the knowledge of someone else's cooties, I'm definitely going with the cooties. I will say that you won't die from it, but like I'm not going to guarantee that you can't get like a cold from this. Smell. Okay, I still got to go with that. I mean, the hot dog thing would be. I think that would push <laughs> you into fucking like deep off, way off the deep end into insanity. Yeah. You'd end up like institutionalized. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What is your favorite New Jersey shore point? Let's see. Uh, is it Brighton Beach? Is that the one that's like directly? There's a, there's a beach when I live. Are you talking about Brigantine? Brigantine Beach. Brigantine. I lo- yeah. used to go to Brigantine a lot because it was just like you just okay. go straight past Atlantic City. It was right there. Yep. Um, yep. It's right really, next to Atlantic really City. mellow. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, super mellow, super, still mellow, very mellow. Yeah. Used to love, yeah. used to love Brigantine. Sorry, Brighton, Brighton's in the UK. And then the final one is the one that we ask everyone. Now you've already done one, so you could pick another one. Normally what I ask people is if you can recommend one album to people, what would it be? You've done one. So I'm going to give you an opportunity if you have one in your head that you also love to tell everyone to listen to. I think I, I would say Nielsen sings Newman just to circle back to that because that's my favorite Harry Nielsen record. And it, I feel like the, if, if Harry Nielsen has any weaknesses, it's like in his like kind of goofiness. And when he's singing Randy Newman's songs, which are like crushingly sad, it's like sort of, it sort of like negates his weakness. Um, and vice versa. Like if Randy Newman has a weakness, it's that his voice is kind of crazy sounding. And then Harry Nielsen is singing his, fucking songs with like the most beautiful you know voice of all time so i would say nielsen sings newman that's an interesting point just to like do you because i think of nielsen as like two like, you know there's nielsen the songwriter and he was prolific as a songwriter but time and again i found like his greatest performances were other people's songs mm-hmm. what do you think he like was he actually more effective as an artist as like an interpreter because i think about that record too it's probably a tie between the one we discussed mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of a strange thing that he was known as a writer, but he like. Well, he did. Say, he did write that song. One is the loneliest number. Right, which is the like three dog night. Oh, really? yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that, that which is like a mega, mega classic song. But yeah, it's weird. Some of his songs are like almost non-songs, where he's like, right. just, he's like, just hit record, and I'm gonna like do the thing with my voice. It's like almost the song is like a vehicle for his singing. It's, right. it's like, you know what I mean? So some of the songs are like barely songs and then some of them, some of them are incredible compositions, but yeah, I mean, I think he's like a singer first and then like one B is like, he's a songwriter. Songwriter. Yeah. But, but he's, yeah, he's great. So. I appreciate you spending time with us, man. It's, it's good to catch up with you again. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm psyched for new Nightlands actually. I, I think, I think I mentioned to you when you came on the Ricky, I actually enjoy the Nightlands record more than I enjoy War on Drugs. Like I, I love the soundscape cool. of Nightlands Thank and you. I love the, um, I'm, so that's, that's exciting. And I'm uh, excited for a new War on Drugs too. That's, uh, that's cool too. You got a lot coming. Thank you. Thank you. It was really fun. Uh, and thanks for pushing uh, my boundaries without yeah. one trio. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was awesome. Yeah. Oh, thanks, man. Man. thanks for coming on, man. Great talking with you. See you dudes. All right. That's all we got. Stay free, my goose. <laughs>